Welcome back to the Feed the Ball podcast. I'm Derek Duncan, and today for episode four, my guest is architect Bill Bergen. I've known Bill a little bit over the years. We both live in the same market, and I'm familiar with his courses and had a chance to interview him a few times for different stories I've written. If you look at his golf courses, the thing that stands out most is the bunkering. Bill's got a very distinctive style of bunkering that gives his golf courses and golf holes a very strong, dramatic look. We'll talk about that bunkering, how he arrived at that style, and why he likes to use it. He learned the profession working for Bob Cup, and while I don't like to use the phrase up-and-comer because he's been doing this for quite a while, it definitely seems like Bill's star is on the rise, especially in the world of renovations and restorations, which is essentially where most of the work these days is, at least domestically. He's had a chance to renovate and restore courses by Donald Ross, A.W. Tillinghast, and now he's working on one that was originally designed by Seth Rayner. Bill's also a tremendously accomplished player himself, and I think that playing ability gives him a unique perspective on how to design and redesign holes that encourage strategic play. He also has some well-defined thoughts on the length that tour players are hitting the ball and how golf courses can be set up to potentially mitigate that. So we'll talk about his background, some of his past projects, some upcoming projects, and it's just generally a nice wide-ranging conversation about golf and golf design. So coming up, it's Bill Bergen. Hope you enjoy our conversation. You indicated that you were up in Minnesota earlier this week at Minnesota Valley Country Club, which is a Seth Rayner design that you're uh, renovating. Um, you know, Seth Rayner designed maybe 40 courses, and there are a lot of people who are emotionally attached to his designs, and there's, you know, his work is some of the greatest. So there's a, always a lot of scrutiny when a, one of his golf courses is being renovated. Do you feel any pressure taking on a job like that? And uh, renovating holds that Rainer designed? Well, it, the interesting thing is on this project, Rainer is credited with design, but without visiting the project. So his staff apparently designed the golf course. And so we don't know what Seth did as far as layout goes, but it has, you know, Rainer characteristics, but it did not have the um, number of template holes that you would typically expect. But now it does. So we're really taking it and making it absolutely a Seth Rayner. And it, again, it has historical ties. It was on, on George Bato's list of, of Rayners. Um, the club has, con, has you know, called it a Seth Rayner golf course since inception, but we have no proof. So that's an interesting, um, an interesting sort of dilemma, I guess, to deal with, but also on your point as an architect it made me less concerned about marring a masterpiece sure we're more creating a masterpiece than we are anything else so we've literally added a true redan we've added a prized dog leg uh we have created a par three barrettes we had a par four barrettes existing on the course which is really interesting and in a hole that i really like and our short is just did, much improved. Did you keep that par four, Beeritz? Yes, yes, yes. In fact, we um, actually shortened it over what the current length is. And this is an interesting thing. So it's um, if you're out, it was a typical you know 380 yard par four. And if you drive it out 120 yards from the green, the green looks like a normal green. Can't see anything. And so, but the closer you get to the green, the more the Brits features show. 
And so we actually shortened it, allowed us to lengthen our redan, which was the second hole. We shortened this this Baritz so that you were hitting more, you can almost drive the green. And you're hitting a shorter shot in, which brings the plateaus into view and also requires a certain finesse in order to hit the ball on the right level. And I think it's much more interesting from 50, 60 yards than it is from 120. So I'm um, pretty excited about that. And it's the kind of shot where you get up there and you go, oh, this is cool. And then you see how good your touch is. <laughs> right. are, you able to, are you able to fly at the right distance? Are you able to hit a skip and run? Uh, there's all kinds of options with, with that type of green. And it's not as big. Like our real Baritz, the green's 60 yards long. Mm-hmm. And on this one, it's more like 40 right. um, on this par four. So it's a pretty cool hole. And it's, it's neat that we've got, you know, We've got a great set of par threes now, and the Redan we have is modeled after Chicago Golf Club, and it's truly spectacular. Uh, just a, an incredible hole, uh, great scale. Uh, we also added a double plateau green. We didn't have one, mm-hmm. and now we do. And so we're we're we have a principal's nose, um, which is also very cool. And then you know one of the things that was evident um, about it, we had a, a basically a snake bunker on the golf course. And as I've been studying, you know, Rainer on, on, I studied probably dozens of Rainer golf courses from Google earth and, and brought those plans into my, into AutoCAD and really looking at different features. And, um, you know, I found another snake bunker like ours on another, on another property of Rainer's. And so, um, we've restored that and, um, you know, those kind of things are, are pretty cool and a little bit of evidence that, um, you know, again, we have evidence that we're, we're very Rainer like, we just weren't, we didn't have all the template holes and, and that kind of stuff. When you walked but the property, I'm sorry, when you walked the property for the first time, other than the Biritz holes, could you identify any template holes at all? You know, we had a Redan looking hole, but it wasn't. It just wasn't. But if, if you didn't, if you didn't get on the green and you went and you, and you just looked at it, you know, from the tee, you go, oh, that's the Redan, but it's not. It, it, the green had nothing to do like a Redan. You know, it, it, that was interesting. And then the, um, you know, we've got a um, a Cape Par Four that's Redan like, and that so there again, and the bunkering was Rainer like, and it had not been touched. You know, it had been original. So, um, you know, again, there was evidence, but not, I would call it circumstantial rather than proof, if you will. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you're working on uh, a renovation or restoration of Shore Acres or Carmargo, you know, you're you pretty much have to honor what's what's there. But if I could see how that'd be pretty interesting. You know, if you're at Minnesota Valley and there's no legend about how to approach these holds, it's almost like you're doing what, what Rainer did. His real genius, other than just, you know, building these and having these template ideas, was figuring out how to fit them onto a property where a certain hole would work and, you know, where, where a, a cape hole might fit in or a long hole. Right. And that's been really interesting, especially with um, my renovation committee who has been all in on the Rainer, but they've wanted to impose Rainer on this site. And I'm not one that wants to impose, I want to work with it. And so that's where I've really helped them is to say, okay, this works here but it might not work in the way that you want. Here's how we have to do it because this is what the land gives us. And so, and that's the interesting thing. You know, my recollection is Rainer had about a repertoire of about 22 holes and he, and he used those, you know, throughout course after course after course, yet the courses look different. 
And I think that is is absolutely a genius. Um, one of the courses, two of the courses that are really admired. You know, I went to Mountain Lake and re- and looked there down in Florida, sure. and you know that's a timeless piece of property. And then Yeamans Hall over in Charleston. Oh, yeah. you know, I went over to Country, Country Club of Charleston, which is which is fine, but Yeamans is really so special. Great. And and yeah, so that was that was a great tour. And then we went to Shore Acres and Chicago Golf Club, and you know those are just absolutely fantastic. So um, and and I've you know I've in in my, in my previous life i've been out to camargo i've been to piping rock i've been you know obviously played um lookout mountain and so not that i know you know all about rainer but i've studied a lot and um would love to get up to fisher's island that would be oh yeah that would be the one that i would put first on my list probably of the mm-hmm. ones i would like to see yeah well, you might might get an invitation now after this is projects over you never know if they're <laughs> going to need some work done in the future you know, watching your your career and, and uh, being familiar with a number of your golf courses, it looks that you have a, a specific bunker style. At least that you've you've gone back to uh, in many cases, which is and I don't know how to, if it's if it's that style is drawn from anybody in particular or if it's your own. But the flat bottom bunker with high steep grass faces has a really dramatic look. It creates a lot of uh, depth and, and shadow, chiaroscuro. It's a very dramatic bunker look. Being familiar with building those types of bunkers, does that help you translate into a similar bunker style that Rayner was known for with the steep faces? Yeah, I feel, I, I feel like that my natural style and Rayner's are cohabitate very well. Right. I mean, they mix mix beautifully, and I will tell you where that started. So, my career as a golfer really sort of began with, um, I would say, the U.S. Amateur in 1977 at Aronimac. Was, mm-hmm. was an introduction to Ross, and, and I qualified for that tournament at Eastlake, which has had its Ross origins. Now, the, the bunkers at Eastlake were not Ross-like. They were George Cobb bunkers back in those days when, right. when, I, when I played there. But I loved Eastlake, and I still love Eastlake. I, I like the routing. I like the feel of the property. And, and, you know, the classic USGA sort of style to me was more of a grass-based bunker um, than it was a flash bunker in, in what I had seen and what I had played, even even with Baldus Rawl, I played the U.S. Open there and Tillinghast. And so that look has always appealed to me a little bit more than the pure flash bunker. And then I was redoing um, Chattanooga Golf and Country Club, which is a Ross. And when we were studying that golf course and determining what we were going to do there, I suggested to the club that I really liked the bunker style at Worcester Country Club in Massachusetts. And um, interestingly enough, uh, Worcester, I think, held one of the early Ryder Cups. And um, we were just listening to uh, Bobby Jones's story on on tape as we traveled through from project to project. And, and Worcester Country Club was one of the, I think, hosted one of those early Ryder Cups. But anyway, I love the bunker style from that course. And we took it to Chattanooga Golf and Country Club, and it was just a home run. It, I don't know if you've been up to that golf course, but it's one of those courses that you walk on and go, wow, um, it's a special place. It feels good. It's just got this 1920s look to it. And, um, you know, it's been a course that I've never taken a client to that hasn't hired me. So it's it's been a home run project. For, it's a good, for one, good one to have and, in your pocket. Absolutely. It is. I mean, it, it, I would tell you that it changed my career. Um, and that was done in 05 and, and everything we've done since then has been really at a different level than what we did before that time. 
So it was it was a turning turning point. But that bunker style evolved out of that. Before that, I had done sort of a half grass, half grass down, half flashed up type of look, um, which can be done very, very well. But I, I prefer um, a little bit more of a bold crest line and a little lower sand line um, on, on my bunkers. And we vary. If you went to Pine Tree and then to Dunwoody and then to Druid Hills, they all three are different. Um, you know, or look them up on my website. If you get on site and actually go look at those three golf courses, they do not look the same, but they are cousins. Okay. They're related to each other, but they do not look the same at all. It's a very, uh, like I said, it's a dramatically impactful look, even if there's variations within the style. Uh, it, it brings a, a boldness to the hole and the, the way the holes are shaped and, and set up. Uh, you also uh, recently re- completed uh, a renovation at Oaks Country Club in Oklahoma, which was a Tillinghast yeah. design. Um, now, t- unlike Rayner, Tillinghast wasn't known for a sp- very specific style. He didn't use template holes the way Rayner did and, and incorporated lots of different looks and features on different properties across the country. Tell me about the process of how you approach that renovation and, and picking out the styles and shapings. Yeah, great observation. Tillinghast um, had tremendous variety in his bunker bunker styles. And um you know, one of the things that we looked at, obviously, was an old aerial photograph. And the first thing we noticed that were the fairways were nice and wide. And that's something I'm finding as we look at m- many of the classic golf courses, that the fairway widths were wider than what we do, to, what we have today. And so fairway width was something important that we did out there. And then the golf course, as we knew it, had been renovated many times. And the bunker bunker style was more of a Perry Maxwell um style but not even a not a good perry maxwell style but but more in that vein out there and so we looked at um at tillinghast from Wingfoot to baltus Rawl to quaker ridge to um all you know all different somerset hills all kinds of different um, tillinghast golf courses and literally came up with a, um a style there that also was a bit of a grassed faced bunker certainly but, but a little bit of flash mixed in with it. So it's kind of a blend, and we found some really good examples at both Baltusrol and Wingfoot of that style bunker, and then we incorporated it at the Oaks. And then Golf Digest picked it as the fourth best renovation in America for 2015, which um, we're very proud to be in that sure. in that short list. Yeah. Um, you mentioned, you referenced this a minute ago, but let's, let's go back. Uh, for those not familiar with, with Bill and his background, he's a great player. And I was curious, you played on the PGA Tour for a while and had a great amateur career. Uh, when did you start playing golf and, and what was your introduction to it? Uh, I started playing golf as a 10-year-old in Maryland and the club that my father, my father was in insurance business. And it, mm-hmm. the nice thing about insurance is it's related to golf. There's a lot of golf played in the insurance business. And so being a member of a club was part of his compensation package. And so we had golf available. And at the club in Maryland, it was called Argyle Country Club. They had a rule that that kids were not allowed to step foot on the grass until you were 10 years old. Mm -hmm. I'm talking, you couldn't walk across the putting green, nothing. You did not step on this turf. And so we would go to the pool and I would look at the grass and, and, and I really wanted to do that. And um, that's where I began playing. And it's funny because I still walk, step on golf courses and get that feeling of privilege that what a special place it is and how fortunate I am 
to walk on this grass today. And I still get that feeling at age 58, which is phenomenal. That's, that awesome. that's you know, yeah. all the all these years later. And so I instantly sort of gravitated to it. Now I played all sports, baseball, basketball, football. Football was my love, but I was 5'5 five, five and 115 pounds when I got my driver's license. So you know my career ended very early uh, in football. And, and so I ended up so playing water, golf and Those soccer. are water boy stats. Yeah, golf and soccer because size did not matter. And so um, both of those sports worked worked very well for me. And, and then, um, you know, I grew up in Atlanta uh, as far as um, really my golf career. Uh, and I grew up with a buddy named Bob Tway. And to have him as a playing partner and competitor and teammate was phenomenal because he was the best player in Georgia as soon as he moved in in ninth grade. And to have that as your person you play golf with every day was was just, you know, talk about getting lessons in golf. Well, they were happening daily for us because we were just out playing and having fun and and learning how to get better and better all the time. So that was a phenomenal time to grow up. In fact, um, we grew up in Indian Hills in Atlanta, and we had 10 boys ages 15 to 16 that could all shoot 75 or better. That was a phenomenal depth. And even Cobb County at the time had um, the golf team at Marietta High School was excellent. The golf team at North Cobb was very good. The golf team at Sprayberry was very good, and we were Wheeler. Uh, Walton sort of took all our depth uh, when they built Walton. They took the young guys away, but but Cobb County golf was incredible uh, during that that mid seventies period. So um, yeah. that's kind of where I started, and then you know it led to a, um, a scholarship to play golf at Auburn, and from there I, I did play professionally. I ended up playing in fifty PGA Tour events, but I only made seventeen cuts which that will send you looking for another career uh, when, with those kind of odds. But I got, to play in, I got to play in three U.S. Opens and two British Opens. And looking back, you know, I, I was able to play a U.S. Open at Pebble Beach, and I was able to play a British Open at St. Andrews. And it just doesn't get much better than Not that. So even, you know, for anybody to play those golf courses is, is just, you know, wonderful. But to play those in a major championship, was, is, is, I just look back on that and just, you know, it's just really I feel very fortunate. Yeah, uh, going back a minute, you mentioned you grew up playing Indian Hills. Do you still have any contacts out there? That that's a golf course that could probably at some point use a renovation. That might be special for you uh, to go back and kind of modify that golf course. Yeah, I don't, and so um, I don't. Know, I'm I, not I, sure. I, I'm not sure if they're in the if they really want, are in the you know renovation uh, phase right now, but. I don't mean yeah, to speak I did that. a I did a small practice area there years ago, but um, that's the extent of the work that I've done out at Indian Hills. But I, you know, I certainly would welcome it with, especially with the with growing up out there. But you know, it's funny uh, over my career, I've really been traveling all over the Southeast, and just in the last you know in the last few years, I'm starting to really work in the Atlanta area, which is which is nice because to um, we've logged a lot of a lot of miles, um, you know, forty to fifty thousand a year. I spend driving even when I'm flying to projects and so we're on the road a lot and to have you know to have done Dunwoody a few years ago which is only you know five miles from my house and to, to have just worked on Druid Hills this past year it has really been a pleasure to to work at home plus yeah, yeah. you also also your peers and friends go oh you know I, I got to play your course and so it, it's nice to have um, have some work that is more local. Uh, another highlight of your golfing career was you, you won the Georgia Amateur in 1981, I believe, 
And, you know, that's, that's nothing to be ashamed of. Some pretty amazing golf names have won that tournament. Um, I was going to ask you, so you're, a, you're at Auburn when you win the, the 81 AM here in Georgia. And what was it like to play against somebody like Alan Doyle, who's this older guy who just dominated the amateur circuit for about 20 years almost? He won five amateurs. Um, what did you, when you saw him in the field, what was the reaction of young guys who are 19, 20 years old? Well, that's, that's so funny because Alan's best golf really came at that time or actually a little later. And so I played with Alan you know, I met him one day and we were playing at Pine Tree and he, Eric, I have to say he was God awful. His swing was terrible and he was terrible. And I never, I never gave him at that time the full respect that he actually deserved. And cause I looked at him like, man, there's no way he can, that, that, yeah. that this guy's going to be better than, than me. Of course he was. Way well, you're, you're so young but and full of confidence. That I age. was young and I looked at him and he couldn't hit the ball the way I could hit the ball. And, you know, there was just nothing about Allen that I went and go, went, wow, this guy's unbelievable until you look at his record and he's phenomenal what he's done, but he really did it at an, a later age. He, I mean, he kept getting better and better, you know, after I quit playing yeah. and, um, and he, and he was winning the state amateur kind of, I don't know if he won it before I did. Griff Moody won the year before I won it. He may have won one before that time. I think he won a, a couple before then. I mean, and, and then he, he might have won the year after you or two years after. But he Yeah, was, and he was winning all through the 80s, absolutely. Yeah. But but we played together one day, and I'm telling you, it was so – it was like, you know, he shot about 41 on nine holes, and it was just chopping it around. I'm like, how can you be that good? <laughs> well, you, you never can judge anybody on a, on a single day anyway. But he he had a phenomenal career, winning two U.S. Senior Opens. I think he won every tour school that you could win. I think he won the PGA Tour School. I think he won the Nike Tour School. And I think he won the Champions Tour School. This guy is, uh, you know, an amazing player. And so, but back in my day, I mean, Griff Moody was the guy I really wanted to beat. Um, he was an outstanding player, Walker Cup player. And mm-hmm. And I, I had a chance to beat him at Westlake in 19, 1980 and did not do it. And then to come back and win it in 81 at Dalton Country Club, you know, I shot 65 the final round. and, and um, That's pretty ballsy. To come, come, yeah, to come from behind and win over Wright Waddell, who was an excellent player. But what's pretty cool now is I'm actually working with Dalton Country Club, and we're going to redo the whole golf course there. And so uh, we have finished a master plan. Uh, next year in 2018, we'll be doing practice facilities and a – a really cool um, pitch and putt short course that I, I love doing. And then in 2019, we're going to take down the whole golf course. So um, that's going to be real exciting to take Dalton Country Club to a whole new level, especially with, with my history there. Absolutely. Yeah, your history at Dalton, you get to work there. Uh, you've built a golf course for Auburn University. We just need to get you back to Indian Hills now to your roots. You can get off. The <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> Uh, you mentioned uh, another highlight of your career was the 84 Open at St. Andrews. Um, Bill shot 66 on Saturday, finished tied for 14th, uh, and, and beat some pretty amazing names. What was that? What was that? What did that feel like walking off the course that Saturday, going into Sunday? And I don't think you thought you had a chance. I think the leaders were a bit in front of you. But what was that feeling like? You just, you know, at the old course to shoot six under. Well, the, the, I'll, I'll even start a little bit earlier. So I, I went over and, and qualified for the, for the British Open at a nearby course called London Links, and I actually shot the course record in the second round of the qualifying. Hmm. And so I'm in the, in the British Open, and I, 
qualify, you know, so I qualify and I, I qualify on Monday. And so we have Tuesday and Wednesday for practice rounds. And I go over on Tuesday and I'm playing with some, several friends, Charlie Bowling, who played on the PGA tour and, and won the South African open. And I are playing a practice round together. So I am with friends. I am really comfortable. And I get on the first tee at St. Andrews and I have the biggest case of adrenaline nerves that I maybe have ever had. And it's a practice round. And, you know, adrenaline or nervousness on a golf course is kind of funny because you can't really predict when it's going to happen sometimes, especially if you haven't been in tremendous number of experiences where you where you faced it. But I have this adrenaline rush, and it's sort of a crazy feeling, but I think it was just the moment of teeing it up where golf began just meant something so special to me that it, it just really ran right through my entire body. So I, I, you know, play practice rounds and everything's fine. And, and, and I was way less nervous for the tournament than I was that first shot the first time I teed it up at St. Andrews. But I, I make the cut on the nose. And um, so, you know, barely make the cut and um, tee it up Saturday morning. And I, I shoot 33-33 and walk off the golf course. And and just the, the 18th hole that day was, was sort of phenomenal. The course record at the time was 65 and I knew that. And on 17, I hit every green that day. And 17, I three putted, but I three putted from a long way away. So it wasn't like you're, you know, it wasn't like you just blew a stroke. But I was on the front of the green, and the the hole was located behind the the road bunker. And that's a, you know, I probably was 60 feet away, and made bogey. And then on 18, I hit it in there for a tap in, and from and it was into the wind. So we were we were back just short of the road, um, hitting our shots mm-hmm. into the green. And the people clapped from the from the time the ball landed all the way till I till I marked my ball, and it was really fun because they knew I was, they knew the putt was for six under, and wow. so um, to shoot sixty six on Saturday, which which was equal of the low round of the week. So Tom Watson shot sixty six, Ian Baker Finch shot sixty six, and Sam Torrance shot sixty six, and so that was that was you know obviously a great moment. And then the final round, I was paired with Nick Faldo, and so. Um, you know, I go out on Sunday, and again, I was less nervous on the tee shot on Sunday Sunday than I was the first day on Tuesday in a practice round. So that's pretty pretty funny um, to look back at that. But but that Sunday, I shoot another 33. So I shot three straight 33s and went from the cut line to um, tie for fifth with nine holes to play. And then I shot 38 on the back nine and backed up a few, backed up to 14th. But it was a phenomenal experience and um really really something that at this point almost it feels like it was another life but um and i've i've toyed with going back and some some part of me says ah if you go back don't play let it yeah just go just walk let, around. That, let that sit there right <laughs> yeah just just let it let it be like but, um, anyway yeah well the so next, i really enjoyed enjoyed that i bet the next year you played at sandwich rural st george and you opened with a 73 um, what's your what's your take on that golf course? That's a golf course when the open goes there. It seems to kind of befuddle and confuse the professional game. What was your takeaway? Well, that course was a completely different experience, and at the time, I felt like that was the hardest golf course I'd ever played. And here's why: so uh, we had crosswinds pretty much on every hole. It, it just felt like you were always in a crosswind, and the fairways were firm and fast. And if you rode the wind you had to sling it, you know, from one side of the fairway to the other. It was really hard to keep it in the fairway. And if you tried to carve it against the wind in order to control the ball, you lost a ton of distance. And so it was in, in 
that made it a hard golf course just for that reason. And then I was on one of those proverbial wrong side of the draws. I caught the absolute incredibly bad weather at the start of my second round. And so my half of the draw, you know, maybe, you know, if you're going to have, you know, 70 players make the cut, I bet 50 were on the good side of the draw and 20 were on the bad side. And I was on the bad side and I got caught, I got caught in really bad weather on the first six or seven holes of the second round and shot myself right out of it pretty quickly on that, on that day. So that was, that was disappointing. Didn't handle the weather particularly very well. And, and, um, so, um, but you, again, it was like a hard golf course because of that. Um, no, I wouldn't say that I, I loved it particularly, but I also didn't play that well. You know, I played fairly well the first day, you know, a reasonably good score, but, um, you know, it didn't have the atmosphere like, and I haven't played a ton of links golf, but I got to go two years ago to, to Royal Dornick and you talk about falling in love with a golf course, phenomenal golf course yeah. where I wouldn't, you know, sandwich is a tough golf course, um, but I didn't, I didn't, you know, of the five majors I played in, I rank it fifth of the, you know, of my favorite courses. So. so you didn't take any concepts from Sandwich or anything, and they don't show up in your uh, design work these days. Is that safe to say? Yeah. And, and it, you know, obviously the memorable thing was is the bunker on the fourth hole, which, yep. you know, is just a massively big high pit. And it mm-hmm. was, you know, it was funny about it. It'd be interesting to see it today because the way we hit the golf ball today is so much farther as far as both distance and carry that that would render that bunker completely obsolete. But back then, if you were, you were into the wind, um, all of a sudden that fairway narrowed up to about 15 yards and the rough on the left side was about a foot deep. And that was just, it was a brutal hole. And that was one of the holes that, that nailed me. So I won't forget it. But um, in that second round, it was pretty much a disaster uh, leading, leading towards missing that cut. So Yeah. What about St. Andrews? I mean, that's, that's a timeless, influential course. I mean, I guess everything in design can go back in some way to St. Andrews. What was your takeaway from, from playing the old course You know, as far as architecture? Reason, I, yeah, no, architecturally, I'll start strategically. So I was able to figure that golf course out actually very quickly. And I, I created a really good yardage book. Um, back then, you know, there were yardage books. They existed. But the information in the yardage books was pretty minimal. And so I did buy one that had gave me a base map of, of the holes. And then I doctored it up completely on what I could learn on the golf course. Well, I learned that you could hit it left all day long, but not shoot a low score. Because you were always at a bad angle into the flag um, from the left side but you were safe. And so you were going to leave yourself a bunch of long putts or chips if you, if you played safely off the tee. But the more aggressive you played off the tee, the more down the right side, the more you risk trouble, the angles opened up into the, into the green. And so I, I, you know, I obviously learned that pretty quickly, but I also mapped the golf course from right, from right to left because you could see various things, um, either – you know, landforms or something you could see down the right side. And I would measure, you know, well, this bunker is 15 yards from that spot to the left, or it's, you know, 30 yards to the left of that spot. So I kind of knew where the hidden hazards were. So I feel like I, I really studied the golf course well. And, and, I, and even the first two days, I struck the ball beautifully. I didn't putt very well at all the first two days, but, um, but really had a great handle on that course. And then, you know, you look back and, and think, 
the year Tiger shot so low. I think he never hit in a bunker at St. Andrews, which is <laughs> just That's unbelievable crazy. that that, a, that somebody could do that. But um, but I hit in very few um, because I had the course mapped out pretty well, and so it was. And I do take a lot from St. Andrews. Um, as I as I move, certainly, um, you know, there are template holes. I mean, Eden number eleven is is um, you know is certainly one of the one of the holes that you look at out there. And then uh, Principal's Nose Bunker, we did one of those at, at, up at because um, Rainer did those as well. Mm-hmm. We did one of those recently in Minnesota Valley. And then um, I did a routing of a golf course in Gallatin, Tennessee, called Fox and Harbor, and uh, we built a new course there in in, in two thousand and. Oh, I guess it was about 2007, and um, it, it's a real estate development course. But and we had very valuable land on a, a beautiful old Hickory Lake surrounds the golf course, and so I had limited amount of land to work with that the developer would give me for the golf course. And so we paired holes. Well, you know, St. Andrews every hole has a has a mate, um, and they share greens with seven of the big greens uh, are shared. And so, um, but they're, you know, holes are side by side and they all add up, you know, I think they all add up to 18. So like the second green and the 16th hole share and, and all of that. Well, at, at Foxland, we routed a golf course through a development and around the lake where each hole had a partner. And what I liked about it was if you lived in a home on the golf course, you didn't look straight across one hole to another home, but you looked across two holes. And so it, it feels like the golf course is its own meandering, you know, routing, you know, St. Andrews is that long, thin, thin cane or hook out there. And, um, this golf course routing was patterned after that, that feel. And so it was was kind of fun to take that back to a a design project here in the United States. Did you bunker it like St. Andrews is bunkered? Um, it's bunk. No, it's bunkered more like um, more like a Ross or a Rainer. Right. And so right. it's it's got a very traditional uh, traditional look like that. But you know what's interesting is is I've even had some people comment if you went out to Dunwoody Country Club and you look at the faces on those bunkers, the crest line is very sharp there, and it, and it, it looks like a a revited bunker even though it's not stacked sod. It's mm-hmm. just you know it's just a it's just a very vertical wall. Um, that is maintained, um, and that they do it incredibly beautifully out at, at Dunwoody. But it has that um, a little bit of a look of a pot bunker, um, just because of that. You know, the pot bunkers have such clean lines um, at, at the top, especially when they're done well. Um, it's a very crisp, you know, almost 90 degree angle from where the, you know, the crest of the bunker moves down into the bunker, and um, so we we do get that look a little bit on our courses. Yeah, Dunwoody's a great property. Beautiful, beautiful job you did. I'm a really big fan of that uh, renovation. Um, after Thank just you. to jump ahead, you uh, walked away from the PGA Tour. You became a club a teaching pro at a, a country club here in Atlanta for a while, and then then you went to work uh, with Bob Cup, and it took you a while to kind of break into that. Tell me, and Bob Cup is ba- was based out of here at, in Atlanta. He passed away last year. Um, what what were your biggest takeaways from working with Bob Cup, and and what what and where did he have you working? Yeah, well, Bob, you know, it's an interesting process because I I knew I went to work at Cherokee and I taught and I loved teaching, but I did it because I still wanted to play golf. I I still had aspirations of getting back to playing competitive golf. And once I sort of got to a point where I felt like that was no longer a viable option. 
I had always been interested in golf course design. And I, I went to John Gehring out at Atlanta Country Club, and um, I was talking to him about it. And he, he made an introduction to Bob because several Atlanta Country Club members were um, the original members at Set Down Creek. And so there was a nice connection there. And so I went to talk to Bob, and he said that I could – you know, hang out in the office. And so I did. I hung out in the office. I worked for free for, for a little while. And I would, um, I cut back on my teaching schedule at Cherokee. I spent as much time as I could at Cup's office. And then he hired me for a minimum, literally minimum wage for a little while. So I was, you know, teaching on the weekends and, and probably working four days at Cherokee and three days at Cup Design. And then he finally got to a point where he offered me a full-time job. So it was a little bit of a process. He was getting used to me and seeing if I could, you know, fit in with the group there. And and I was learning all kinds of things because when I entered the business, I didn't even know what a Mylar was. I didn't know anything. Um, I knew golf. And that was one of the things he told me. He goes, I can teach you golf course design. I can't teach you golf. You've already got that. And so, um, you know, bringing that to the table and then learning what it takes to take what is instinctive or your ideas that just, you know, golfers see things a certain way and then be able, being able to learn how to draw that and actually produce it was really exciting for me. And I think Cup was a perfect company for me to work for because they did really nice design plans. I mean, really user-friendly, um, you know, Billy Fuller was there at the time as well. And, and he was this golf course superintendent. We had construction guys. We had people who really knew you know, how to take a design and, and, and build it, draw it properly and then build it properly. And so it, it fit very well with, with my personality because I, like, uh, I like a good set of plans. I like a full set of plans. I like to have 99% of the information we're going to use on plan. And then we, you know, we build it in the field. So what we draw, if you look at a set of our, our plans even to today, what we draw is what we build. And it always works. And so, um, you know, some guys, you know, do much more field work. Um, P. Dye certainly was a, he's a design builder. I mean, mm-hmm. he, he gets on a bulldozer and builds things, but to draw a grading set of grading plans, I don't know that he ever did that in his life. Um, you know, they, they did more um, by feel. Absolutely. And, um, and, and I like to, I like to plan it out both strategically. And then, you know, looking at a topo map, when I first got to Bob's office, I couldn't tell up from down. I didn't know what any of it meant. And now I look at a topo map and it just completely comes to life. You know, I see it in 3D. I see, you know, the highs, the lows, the movement of the land and exactly where we want to want to do things. So it was a, it was a great fit, yeah, was a great um, fit. for me. Yep. Yeah, Bob's always known for being like his precision in his in his plans. Um, he has some good good stories about building over at Liberty National and how precise they had to be with all the the EPA uh, and capping and waste site waste coverage site on on that property. What was uh, what what jobs did you work for for Bob Cup? Where did he have you? Yeah, so I was almost in the office 100% of the time, but the projects that we worked on at the time, Legends Club of Tennessee was a big 36-hole project with, with Tom Kite, um, Council Fire, also up in Chattanooga, which I actually work there now. I uh, just finished working on um, some practice facilities for those guys um, this past year. Mm-hmm. And then um, Pumpkin Ridge was on our on our part of our plans, although out of the West Coast office with John Fote. But that was one of the courses that we worked on. And then Emerald Bay down in Destin and Greystone over in Birmingham. And we did some, some you know, work up in Canada at the time. And um, we worked on, uh, I worked on about 20 to 25 different projects um, doing various 
aspects of but all the drawings you know cut and fill plans drainage plans renderings um you know bob did the grading plans he did the greens plans but we put them all we made them all look good (laughs) and so he would do a do a rough sketch and we'd take it and and make it look you know make it fit our our style of plans but um you know learned all the all the basics that go into what we call the the um they're almost takeoff plans but they're they're the ones you use to actually create all the quantities and and so the contractor knows exactly what he's doing you know the grading plan is the true design but but the cut and fill the drainage the grassing irrigation all of that are the the ones that that, that um, complement the design and, and and also help you you know bid a job properly and deliver deliver it on budget. What was the best golf course you think that Bob Cup designed and built? You know, I'm a pretty big fan of of Sutton Down Creek. Um, I have some criticism of it too, but I think it's it's an excellent golf course. Yeah, I, have, um, I have a little uh, more criticism than than a little bit, but I get. I yeah, hear mine might be a little different. Mine might be a little different. I don't like starting a golf course with a par five ever. Um, with a third shot thought, over think, water. Yes, and with the mirror image of it on the tenth the hole, tenth, yeah. which means you almost play those holes the same way. So I don't think they're strategically as interesting as they could be, mm-hmm. um, because I think too often you play them in a similar manner, and so that would be a criticism. Overall, I think it's a fantastic golf course, though, and if you can play Seton Down Creek, you can play any golf course in the world. That's true. Um, certainly, a, certainly a, a stern test. Uh, great variety, uh, uh, you know. So it's it's a it's a favorite. Now Bob was a, a really good player. You're a great player. Who, who are some of the in the uh, ASGCA? Who are some of the best sticks other than yourself? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So Steve Smyers, excellent player. Trip mm-hmm. Davis is an excellent player, and then John Sanford, our new president, is a good player as well. And then uh, a lot of the a couple of the Nicholas guys, Chris Cochran and Jim Leip, mm-hmm. are also also very good players. So there there are you know th- there aren't a ton of good players, but those guys certainly are are you know, highly competitive golfers. Okay. On the other end of the spectrum, who are some of the worst? Now don't chicken out <laughs> on me. No, I will. I just, I would, <laughs> I'm going to call out Steve Forrest and not that he's a bad golf, but, but you know, when we go to our ASGCA annual meeting, we do get to play golf together and it's a lot of fun. And Steve and I got to play two rounds together out in San Diego. And um, he was having a little short game issue. Okay. And so he, did, at, at some point, he went to all putter, and he would putt from 100 <laughs> yards. And he was actually not bad at it. So, <laughs> so um, anyway. Well, at, least you were, at least you were playing a golf course where that's possible. You know, you're playing yes. on Bermuda grass down here. You know, it's really not a play. That's right. So, um, yeah, so that was funny. But, um, you know, they, they, um, I, I most often get paired with some fairly decent players, Um so that's you know, and you still I don't keep know how your game that all sharp. works. You still keep your game pretty no, sharp. No, no, I wish. Um, but I'm I um I'm always hopeful that I'll play a little bit more. But right now I've I've played three rounds in the last three or four months, and so that's pretty pretty typical because we're traveling and working all the time. Um, only shot under par once once this year, and um, only so, once, yeah. <laughs> Only once, and um, but I'm more likely to shoot, you know, mid 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 to higher seventies would be more typical. So um, it's all still there. It's just that I don't play very often. Yeah, 
I, I personally think the, the media spends way too much airtime and, and print time talking about PGA Tour players overpowering golf course and the distance the ball flies. But it is a topic, and it's, it's relevant sometimes, um, and it's definitely relevant for golf course architects. So since being a, being a former PGA player and, and a, a guy who is disappointed that he only broke par once so far this year, Tell me about your view on the whole distance matter. And you can talk about what you think the, the way a course could be set up or designed to counteract that. Do you think it's, a, it's an issue? Um, and I bring this up because uh, I, I saw you responded to a tweet by David Duvall recently, and he said he thought the way to, to approach the distance matter through design is, is through better design, rough, and uh, green complexes. And then you had a response to that. So... Tell me about your thoughts on on PGA Tour players and the distances they're hitting the ball. Okay. Well, first of all, they are in such a small minority that we really should not design our golf courses based around them because the vast majority of golfers are not capable of doing what PGA Tour players do. I design golf courses for players to play the game on the ground, because I believe that ultimately that's what happens. And when I say that, you know, the, the typical golfer spins the ball less, carries the ball less, misses more greens. What happens to their golf ball on the ground is a big deal. In other words, if they're playing a soft golf course that doesn't roll, and you know, that's impacting the average golfer tremendously, where the better you are, the more the game, you play the game in the air. Do I think we have a ball problem? I do. I really do because I'm 58 years old and I hit the ball farther than I did when I was a tour player and I hit balls all day long. I was so much stronger then than I am today and yet I hit the ball farther today. Even with even with blades, okay, I hit it farther with an iron than I did when I was on tour. So that's that's a big deal. Secondly, the players hit the ball so high that a golf course like Augusta National, which was based on angles and players bringing the ball into a whole location from a specific side of the fairway, that is becoming obsolete because they're bringing the ball in from such tremendous heights that the angles are no longer part of the design like they used to be. So I am an advocate for a competitive golf ball. Okay, I believe that high-level competition whether it be at the state amateur level all the way through college golf, through professional golf, should have a conforming golf ball. Just like they do not use aluminum bats in the major leagues for a reason, because every single ball that was popped up would be a home run. Um, golf is being impacted by that. So um, I am definitely a believer in a competitive golf ball, and I hope somebody um, does adjust that at some point, because the distance – that you get out of today's golf ball. If you swing the club 90 miles an hour, you get a yard or two more carry than you would have gotten in the year 2000. But if you swing it 110 miles an hour, you're getting seven to 10 more yards. And if you swing it 110 like a tour player, you're getting 20 to 25 more yards. And the guys who can go 120 are hitting it 50 yards farther. And the gap between the shortest tour player and the longest tour player has never been bigger than it is today. Back in in the 80s, when Dan Pohl was the longest hitter on tour, he averaged about 282, and the shortest hitter on tour may have been Mike Reed, about 240. That was a 40-yard gap. Today's gap's probably getting close to 80, 80 or 90 yards between the shortest hitter and the longest hitter. So I think there is a problem there, and it does impact the way the golf courses are are 
designed, but again, only the occasional golf course, only a few golf courses, because it just doesn't doesn't impact that many. But it but it does have a does have it does have an impact. So then you are in charge of setting up a golf course, or you're designing a golf course that you know a tour level tournament is going to be played there. What's what's your solution? Uh, is it is it just length, or are there other things that you can you no, can so do? No, so that's yeah, that goes back to my response. So I, I kind of went into a long long explanation, but here you go. So I think overall yardage is actually much less important than great diversity. So you know, I want a couple short par fours, and I want a couple really long par fours, and I want everything in the middle. I want a 140 to 150 yard par three, and I want a 240 yard par three, and I want two of them in the middle. I want two reachable par fives, and I want one or two not reachable par fives. So I think yardage diversity is way more important than the actual length. Now, obviously, they do hit it. You know, they're carrying it 300 yards without any problem. But still, you can you can set up a golf course that does still challenge players. Look at Harbortown. I mean, it's still Harbortown is still viable. Okay. Um, you know, Colonial is a great golf course. It's not, it's not particularly long. Um, so you don't have to be that long. Now, the other thing that I believe impacts um, scoring are the size of greens. And I think that tour players are so skilled that you put them on a large set of greens and they can two-putt from just about anywhere. So I actually would advocate for a little bit smaller greens with really much more interesting Greens complexes, um, short game, short game challenges, things like that, um, rather than large, mean, you know, large, well contoured greens. Again, the tour, tour players are going to hit more greens. They're going to, you know, they're going to make their birdies where they get the chance, but they're going to, um, they're going to save par, you know, with their long, with with two putting from long distances very easily because they just do it. I mean, you look at the number of tour players that don't have a three putt during the week, and it, it's 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 not just a few. A lot of guys don't three putt at all. And so, um, again, smaller greens, more interesting greens complexes, more challenges around the greens, I think, can create some really, really great golf. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about this, and you you might be the, the one of the best guys I know to answer. If you give a tour player a 60-yard shot, and then you give another tour player a 100-yard shot, they're both hitting some kind of sand wedge, probably. How much closer, on average, can the guy playing from 50 or 60 yards get than the guy playing from 100 yards? I think it's probably going to depend on the player, but I'd take the guy from 100 yards probably more often than I would the 60. Mm-hmm. Because the 100-yard is more of a stock swing for him. He's got a sand wedge dialed in, you know, especially with three wedges. So interesting thing, I just um, got a new set of clubs this year, and I'll give Callaway a nice plug because they took really good care of me. But for the first time, I have a, I have a 58, a 54, and a 50 wedge system. And that creates a nice tighter gap my old set of clubs i had a 54 and a 60 and a pitching wedge and i had a good solid 20 yard gap between clubs which was a little bit too much of a gap especially for a guy who doesn't play that much so having the tighter gap allows you to sort of have a stock swing and know how far the ball's going to go and a little bit easier and you get any of the guys at 60 yards that's just sort of a feel shot and so a guy like zach johnson or steve stricker Mickelson, those guys might be really good from that position, but not all. Uh, Rory McIlroy probably would not be. His wedge game isn't, isn't quite as good. So 
So I think if you could set 10 tour guys up at 100 yards, might beat the guy, might beat 10 guys from 60 yards. They might. The, the reason so I bring that close, up is being closer is not an advantage necessarily. Okay, so th- this is a completely hypothetical. This golf course would probably be terribly boring to play, but if your goal was to equalize the field, uh, make the shorter hitters um, more competitive with the longest hitters, you could build all the par fours like 390 yards because if the if the guy who hits at 330 hit hits driver there he's going to have a kind of that awkward 50 60 yard shot the shortest hitter is going to have a you know 290 hitter is going to have 100 yards in um right it would be versus if you it would be if you build the 490 hole now your dispersion is 40 yards so you're looking at like 170 yards in for the big hitter who can hit you know eight iron nine iron right versus two right two ten. Four iron for somebody now you've else. got an advantage right. yeah that's that's you know that goes right into when the remember when when golf courses were were quote trying to tiger proof their courses well yeah. the truth is they just made it better for him because he was the better player that's right lengthening so courses the harder they the harder they made augusta national the harder they made Augusta National, the more it fit Tiger's game. Yeah. So that was so that goes right into what you were what you were saying. And and again, that's why I think the course needs to have that great yardage diversity. So you don't want every par four to be four twenty or longer. That doesn't really do it. You you do need a, a great little mix. And and an occasional dog leg also um impacts the way, you know, players you take Southern Hills that golf course probably will hold up fairly well, especially because, you know, a lot of the holes curve and the fairways actually curve in the opposite direction. Olympic club, Olympic club probably will hold, hold its own even um, the next time it hosts a major championship and Pebble beach, you know, Pebble beach is not a long golf course. Pebble beach has small greens, you know, the greens average 4,000 square feet at Pebble beach, which is probably the smallest of any major championship um, that exists. And so, um, you know, there are certain courses you know, Marion uh, was a good U.S. Open when Justin Rose beat Mickelson. That was a great U.S. Open. I know they tricked it up, and I didn't go see it, but I, I did enjoy watching it, and I was glad that they they did play there. And it, but it, it takes driver out of out of their hands at, at times. I don't think there's anything wrong with taking driver out of a player's hand occasionally, as long as the shot that you're hitting is a good shot. You know, they don't have to driver every hole. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was a lot of consternation, worry about the Open heading into Marion, but. Uh, yeah and they had to narrow down the fairways and make it kind of that old 1970s style u.s open venue a little bit but it was one of the best opens we've had in a while yeah very exciting yeah um getting back to some of the things you've been doing uh you've mentioned it a few times before but you did uh a lot of bunker work recently at at druid hills um which is relevant to me i live about two two miles away from druid hills so i've been kind of watching it from over the fence um really neat up and down hilly property what exactly did you do there, and is the work finished? Yeah, we um we we just we did much more than a bunker renovation. In fact, we need to let you see it inside inside the fence line. I'll be happy to tour you. Um, so we actually did what I would call a greens surrounds renovation. So we we basically dealt with everything that happens around the greens of Druid Hills, and um, we rebunkered it, which the bunkers had gotten to the point where they were impossible to maintain. They were also pretty darn impossible for players to get physically out of 
with their bodies and um, and golf balls on on some occasions. So it was it was definitely time for a renovation, and um, we ended up you know fixing a tremendous number of collar blends where there were caped collars that um, really impacted the way a ball. Um, one had to come out of the bunker two if it was carrying into a greens complex and and was you know one foot on one side of the cape it would carry the ball over the green and one foot short it's back in the bunker and this was impacting the the average golfer far more negatively and it was not impacting the better player at all and then the greens a lot of the greens were hidden from view with the capes along the bunkers and so we trimmed those down leveled out collars uh, increased chipping areas around the greens, really made the greens complexes play much larger, uh, much more interesting, lots of fun short shots uh, where, you know, again, the average golfer doesn't hit that many greens in regulation during during a round of golf. And, and even good ones, you know, miss four to six greens uh, around. And and if you add the par fives, what you're doing around greens is, is always interesting and, and, and fun little shots. And that's something that's improved dramatically. And then we added... We added five or six back tees. We added about 10 forward tees. Um, so we adjusted tee positioning, uh, tree removal, all kinds of things. So uh, really a, a nice, clean look. It was a you know great property to work with. Obviously, Bob did an excellent, Cup did an excellent renovation there. And it was it was fun to come in and, and take his work and, and fine-tune it. And we're still actually, um, now we're, we're finished with that renovation but we are master planning sort of the future of the club a lot of that has to do with practice facilities um and some of some more tea work and things like that so it's been a been a real pleasure and i'd love to tour you around the course if you'd like sure yeah i'd love that um you mentioned bob cup he did a complete renovation of the course in the early 2000s now do you feel like you were going in there and kind of cleaning up some of the things that that he did that didn't work uh, or is it just are these maintenance issues and, and wear and tear issues? A little bit of both a little bit of both and, 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 and again I would tell you that that I really feel like I specialize in, in, in short game shots around greens and creating really good fun interesting ones and Drew Hills was more of a sand wedge Mr. Green you got a sand wedge whether you're in you're in rough or a bunker you're pretty much just hitting a sand wedge um, when you miss a green and so we have a lot more variety of what's happening around the greens complexes and the way the way they play and again that makes you know the, when I work on a golf course um, almost the same thing happens every time the course rating gets harder and the slope rating drops so the course rating goes higher slope rating goes lower almost on every course I work on and so um, the course rating is based on a zero handicap and the slope rating is based on a 15 handicapper. So if we're making it harder for the better player, we're doing our job. And at the same time, we're making it more user-friendly for the, the typical member, then we're really doing our job. And I, I say that's good for the parking lot because whoever comes and visits that, visits that property will will find a course that they really enjoy and it's fun and fair. Now we're, we're not taking the challenge out because we're making it harder for better players. So that's not happening, but, but we're making it feel like it's fair that you've got room to play. And I use this word a lot, but I like players to have the ability to navigate. They can navigate around trouble or they can challenge it, but they have a choice. And, and we've got way more choices um, at Druid Hills than you had before. You're also, uh, at least I saw on a press release, uh, you're at some point going to get started in some work with Reese Jones up uh, on 
Lookout Mountain at a place that used to be called Canyon Ridge. Now it's called Lookout Mountain Resort. How does that work with with you and, and Reese Jones? Why not just give it yeah. to one or the other? Well, the um, the guys up in uh, the, the owners are Chattanooga based, so they are very familiar with my work at the Country Club, and then in the last couple of years, I've also done some work at the Honors Course, and these guys um, are involved in up there in the, both facilities. And they came to me to look at Canyon Ridge, and, and we got started on a project and looked at it and, you know, knew they were going to do a hotel. And with a hotel and conference center, they want sort of a national um, presence. And I had done uh, a project where Reese consulted with me on a job in Florida not too long ago, down in Winter Haven, Florida. Mm-hmm. And so I told the guys, I said, well, if you're looking for some national marketing ability, um, I can call Reese and see if he'd be interested in the project. And I did, and he was. So we're, we're going to team on this project, and it's actually now called Macklemore. Okay. This golf course, Can- Canyon Ridge, looks over Macklemore Cove, mm-hmm. um, and it's a phenomenally beautiful area. Um, it's gorgeous. It up just, on Lookout Mountain. Yeah, it drops it straight stunning. down about 1,000 feet. Yep. And so um, the, new, the new facility will be called Macklemore, and it will be a... Um, Certainly, uh, um, there there are home sites all all over the golf course, but it'll also be a resort where you can come and stay in a hotel and 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 play the golf course. And um, it is a, a a special place. It's got a great feel. The views are incredible, and um, we're looking forward to working on the golf course. It's a good golf course, but it's got it's some wonky holes. One. It's got some awkward. It spots. does. It, it's got two really awkward spots that that we can improve dramatically, and um, they like. They like my ideas on those holes, and that's a job that we'll get started on in the spring. So we're, we're in the design phase on that right now. Yeah, I feel it won't be that long before uh, you won't need a, a boost to get that national claim. Bill Bergen's name will be good enough on its own. Hopefully, I think you're well, we're that working direction. on that. Yeah, we're working on that. Yeah, we're working in Oklahoma right now. We're working in Minnesota. We're working in, and you know, we just finished up a job with U.S. Kids up in North Carolina. We're all over Tennessee and doing a, a neat job in Memphis um, at Chickasaw Country Club, which is a William Langford. Ooh. A lot of people may not be familiar with Langford, but he was a classic designer from the 20s um, in the in the style of a Ross or a Rainer. A little bit like Rainer. Um, yeah, and so really excited about um, starting on um, Chickasaw Country Club in January. Will you uh, reference old Lang- Langford designs, or do you know what he did there? No, we will. And we've got an aerial that's got some really cool angular features right. that we can see from the aerial. And, um, you know, some, some you know, bold landforms. Um, you know, there's Lawsonia up in Wisconsin. Oh, it's an incredibly best. cool golf course. And so... We want to take some of that that feel and look and, and bring it to Chickasaw. And our golf course, you know, is is heavily tree-lined, heavily, heavily tree-lined. In fact, it's so narrow that it makes Harbor Town look wide. And so we're, we're going to be doing a little bit of tree work, too, on the course. But uh, we're really excited about getting started with that one. Over the last few years, you've, you've really been focused on renovating historic courses. I'll ask you a different question. What's, what's the best modern course you've seen lately? Um, you know, that's not mine. I enjoyed the Streamsong um, property a lot. Right. And, um, and I think the reason I liked it so much is I like the turf quality, and it feels like Lynx Golf. If you put your – for anybody who's never played Lynx Golf over in Scotland or Ireland – if you go down to Streamsong in Florida, 
the way the ball acts on the ground is like a Lynx golf course. That's a term that's thrown around in the United States way too often where we talk about Lynx golf courses, but it's about the ground and it's about the bounce and the feel. Sand. And we don't have that very exactly, sand. We don't have that very often in the United States. And Streamsong does a great job of providing Lynx golf. I know you got to get back to work, Bill, but that brings up a, another topic I've been thinking and asking people about lately is is width. And you mentioned it earlier about some of the old courses. You saw the aerials for Oaks. The, you know, you noticed the fairways were wider. Is there is, can a, a golf course fairway be too wide? I mean, at Streamsong, you can you can almost drive it anywhere. I mean, you might not have a good angle or yeah, yeah. So I think I think if it depends on how things are playing, I think that width. And angles are incredibly interesting when a golf course plays fast and firm. If it plays slow and soft, not so much. Um, but if it's fast and firm, then it then it matters. And then you want, you know, it's really fun when when you plot a golf course back from the whole location and decide, okay, here's where the flag's located. Here's how I want to attack that. Now that's that's you've got to have the ability to to deal with that as well. Uh, in other words, not that many of us, we, we, we might be good intentioned when we're standing on the tee shot, but once we hit it out in the fairway or on the rough, we're in recovery mode because it didn't quite go as, as we planned. But you still have that intention of trying to play the golf course from the whole location backward. And again, as so that has to do you know, with fairway widths. I think that's a big deal when you have, you know, bunkers in certain positions, you know, if you drive it close to a fair, this is classic Bob Cup strategy when I agree with it totally, but if you drive it really close to a hazard in the fairway, that should open up the angle into the green beautifully. If you play cautiously away from, from trouble, then your next shot has to deal with more of an issue, uh, a poor angle or coming over a bunker or a shallower green or something like that. That's just really good, interesting strategy where you reward somebody for taking taking advantage. That's classic St. Andrews. At St. Andrews, the closer you hit it to the trouble, the more it opens up your angles into the, into the flagstick. So, um, so your question was, can they be too wide? Well, right now there's a trend of no rough. You're seeing a ton of that with Gil Hands and, and Doak and Crenshaw, where they're designing you know wide fairways and then natural areas from that point, sandy sandy waste areas from that point. And um, and there's really no rough cut, and that's that's a that's a that's a uh, a very um, hot trend out there right now. We did a good bit of that with the U.S. Kids Golf up at Longleaf and Pinehurst, and it, it works well there. Um, plus, we had limited irrigation on that property anyway, and so it, it 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 sort of works perfectly for what we're doing there. What are your what are your top three or four or five golf courses in the Atlanta market? And you can you can include your own in there if you'd like to. Yeah, I, I, well, I, the two that have been always been my favorite are East Lake and Atlanta Country Club. Um, and I've played more golf at Atlanta Country Club than any other course in Atlanta, and I never tire of it. It's just a beautiful golf course. It's fun. It has great variety, and it's the kind of course that you can just play every day. Just a just a tremendous golf course. East Lake. To me, is that classic USGA style golf course, and I've had, you know, I won a U.S. Open qualifier there, I won a U.S. Amateur qualifier there. Um, it's a course that I, I've always competed on well, and and just liked playing from the first day I saw it when I was 15 years old, and um, so it's it it ranks as as my top. And then, um, 
You know, I've got Dunwoody and, and Druid Hills and Pine Tree, and Pine Tree's kind of a sleeper. I'll talk about it because Pine Tree is a, a really well-conditioned golf course, but it's not in the immaculate, pristine, everything's taken care of like you would find at Dunwoody or, or Druid Hills or Atlanta Country Club. It's a little bit um, rougher around the edges, if you will, but the shot values at Pine Tree are tremendous, and the greens are second to none. The greens are as good as you'll find. They're exciting. They're treacherous. They're fair. You know, you can get you can get whatever you want at Pine Tree. I think it's an underrated golf course. I think the more people play it, the more they go. Um, they and I they they like it more and more. It's one of those you just keep playing it. And you go, wow, this is a good course. And um and it's also the kind of course that if you play well there, like setting down, if you play well there, you can play anywhere. So um. I'd, I'd say it's definitely worth a look. And um, my peers who have known it a long time after we redid it, I got a lot of, you know, you know, I liked it, but the more I play it, I love it. And that's a, that's a nice compliment. So, um, so it, it's a, it's kind of a, I think it's a little bit of a sleeper still, even though we, we did it eight years ago, but I still think it's one that's um, as people play it more often, they go, wow, I really like playing there. And it can be really difficult too. Um, it's, it's a good test. Good. Well, Bill, let's leave it right there on that awesome plug. Uh, it's been great talking to you. I know you, you're busy. I'll let you get back to work, but it was good catching up and continued success in all that you do. Thank you very much, Derek. Pleasure talking to you. Okay. Have a good one. Thanks. All right. Thanks to Bill Bergen for spending some time with me. Hope everybody knows Bill a little bit better. If you'd get a chance, go out and uh, see some of his work if it's in your area. He's not quite an A-list architect. I don't think anybody would say that right now, but his career seems to be trending in the right direction, and he's getting more interesting projects, so uh, hopefully that continues. He's got a lot of talent. Given his playing background, he definitely has the strategic side figured out. He knows how to arrange hazards and make things kind of interesting and challenging for good players, and his courses are, are fun around the greens. It was interesting that he mentioned that most of his courses these days show a pretty high rating for the accomplished players, and yet the slope rating is pretty low. That seems to be the really the holy grail. Every architect I ever speak to basically brings that up, you know, trying to figure out how to make courses play challenging for really good players and yet not beat up high handicap players courses that can be fun and playable and enjoyable for them. Um, Maybe Bill has it figured out. It certainly seems so if uh, the USGA and the state uh, rating associations have anything to say about it. But he's he's also got uh, a real eye for composition and and artistry too. His golf courses have a, a definite look to them, especially the closer that you get to the greens. His bunker style, as we talked about, is very distinctive. It has a point of view. It has a look. You may get to the point where you start to see them and say, oh, that, that's a Bill Bergen course. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. There are a lot of golf course architects who kind of use bunkering to highlight their work. You know, like in the 1980s, 90s, 1970s even, if you wanted to make a photogenic golf hole, you would build a green next to a water hazard, maybe bank it with a rock wall or bricks or railroad ties and shoot it and put it in magazines. And that was was considered attractive. That was something that kind of got the juices flowing of the general public. It's changed now. Now the beautiful golf holes we see have these, you know, windswept, blown-out bunkers. The natural look uh, is in, and there are golf course architects who use that look repeatedly. You know, granted, often they're on great sandy sites where it works well, but that's something that is easily emulated and copied and imitated as well. 
And, you know, Bergen's got his own style. They're flat-bottom, grass-faced bunkers with sharp, high-def top edges. Uh, it's a nice, clean look. It's pretty cool. The other thing I was going to bring up is um, I really undersold the accomplishments of Alan Doyle in this podcast. Alan Doyle won two Georgia Amateurs uh, before Bill Bergen won his in 1981. Doyle won the, won the following year and then went on to win three more. So he won six Georgia Amateur titles. And that kind of makes it even more of a neat anecdote that Bill shared about how he played with, with Doyle and, and didn't think much of his game. Um, I'm thinking sandbagging. I'm not quite sure. Um, but that was, that was fun to get those recollections. And of course, Doyle went on to have that great post-amateur career, turning professional and, and just having a, a great run on the senior PGA Tour. Thanks for joining me. This was a fun one. Check feedtheball.com for future episodes. Also check out my other website, theduncanlist.com, for candid course reviews and other golf features. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. Once again, I want to thank Bill Bergen and thank you all for tuning in. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.